Benvenuti, ciao ragazzi. Hello, welcome. Um, it's a hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts. Another episode, and this week um, it's all about Italy. Italia. Italia. See. Um, we love Italy. Yes. Obviously. Very much Who so. doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, we both spent a fair bit of time there. Mm-hmm. I went there, I think, four times last year for various That's work and yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of other family commitments, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my girlfriend's parents live in Italy. Yes. Um, and we have both just been there. Yes. So um, I've just been to Venice. I've Charlie's just been, just to, been to uh, Sicily. Yeah. Um, how was it? Tell us about it. It was fantastic. Yeah, I was walking across Sicily on a, on a walk or a hike called the Magna Via Francigena, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a modern reconstruction of an old uh, route between the towns of Palermo and Agrigento. Beautiful. Pilgrim. Pilgrim. Yeah, an old pilgrim route or an old part of kind of an old trade route, an old pilgrimage route, but reconstructed in 2017 um, by kind of people who want to promote tourism in, mm. in rural western Sicily. And it is it's fantastic. Definitely would recommend if nice. you like dogs. There's a lot of dogs. Right. Okay. <laughs> any run-ins with any dogs? Uh, a few run-ins. Yeah, the odd run. You've got to be on your guard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take precautions. Walking poles. Walking poles. Maybe carry a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maybe an, an anti-dog alarm. Some dog spray. Some dog spray, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just be careful. <laughs> Please be careful. Um, any good food out there? Oh, absolutely incredible food. Maybe we'll get onto some of it in uh, more detail. But Sicily, you know, I think having spent you know just over a week there um, recently, one of the best Italian food regions. Not only have you got kind of the famous things like the you know the arancini, mm. the cannoli. Um, all their pasta dishes are absolutely phenomenal. Pasta Norma is a good example of that. Pasta with aubergines, mm-hmm. um, but then all the other stuff that you know you probably haven't heard of, like sardine pasta and um, their meats, their sausages, uh, their, all their various different types of kind of uh, breakfast pastry. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, phenomenal. They know how to eat good in in Sicily. That's for sure. Amazing. Yeah. What are you eating on like a day to day? Well, energy, fuel, yeah, we'd start our day. I mean, the local tradition that we seem to um, adopt quite quickly is uh, you go to a a cafe, a patisserie in the morning with all the other blokes. It only seems to be blokes doing this. Pile in about three pastries, uh, a quick espresso or a cappuccino, and then stand around for a bit having a chat with the other blokes. And then uh, Mm. we would go about our daily walk. They would do whatever they're doing. Um, Yeah. But sitting yeah, playing checkers or something. Sit there playing checkers. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, a very masculine kind of culture, this yeah. kind of early morning cafe culture in Sicily. But yeah, it was it was interesting to witness and uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And then, you know, in the, in the day, we'd always take kind of like a pizza or a sandwich with us on the walk. Mm-hmm. In the evening, pasta, more pizzas, antipasties, uh, and then, yeah, meats and sausages and things like that. Nice. Do they have street? Do you have any street food? A lot of arancini, arancini. shitloads of arancini, uh, lots of cannoli, um, which is, as you're aware, I'm sure, a kind of tubular pastry filled with ricotta cream. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, now you can get it pretty much any kind of major city on the planet, um, but the absolute ground zero for cannoli culture is um, a really interesting place called. Uh, definitely going to butcher this. The Piana degli Albanesi, okay. which means uh, the Plain of the Albanians. Mm. Um, and the story goes that um, during the, the 15th century, um, when the Ottomans came and they conquered um, Greece, they conquered Albania, they conquered basically the Balkans, Loads of Greek Orthodox Albanians fled uh, the Balkans and they went to rural Sicily, interestingly enough. Um, and they were given some lands by the bishop um, that were originally known as the the Piana degli Greci, the Plain of the Greeks, because of their religion. Um, and then, uh, and and to this day, they they still have Greek Orthodox churches in these towns of like you know five six thousand people. Um, but then 
Mussolini invaded Greece and as part of kind of a propaganda drive he decided to change the name from the plain of the Greeks to the plain of the Albanians because they were ethnically Albanian people they still speak a dialect of Albanian in this this small town in Sicily um but yeah Mussolini changed the name because he thought he wanted to get them on his side when he was invading Greece and they would be convinced by that obviously they probably weren't because it's just a name change but these Albanians, um, or ethnic Albanians now, um, but they identify as Italians who speak Albanian, uh, hundreds of years later, they're still there. They're still kind of doing some Greek Orthodox rites in their church, although it's merged a lot with Catholicism. They're still speaking a dialect of Albanian. All their signs are in, on their street signs are in Italian and then Albanian. Um, but they make the best cannoli going. Um, and that's because this plain of the Albanians where they, they live, which is a beautiful valley of lakes, of hills, of tiny little almost alpine towns, um, is is where the best ricotta in, in right. Sicily is made, essentially. So they make a sheep's ricotta rather than a cow's ricotta. The sheep are obviously grazing in this kind of like hilly alpine landscape. Um, they are... The, you know these these people who live in the Piagna degli Albanese they're going out there they're milking the sheep they call it uh, kilometer zero ricotta which yeah. you know we might call it zero mile ricotta yeah, in the yeah, UK yeah. you know it's, it's coming from there it's not traveling at all I don't know how long ricotta takes to make I imagine given it's quite a soft cheese it's probably not a long process yeah. but they're getting the freshest ricotta in their cannoli um, and they also boast about the fact they don't have to put any sugar or very little sugar in it compared to other cities because the sugar is a preservative and because theirs is so fresh, they don't need to add that much sugar. So you get a real taste of proper ricotta, sheep's ricotta in the cannoli from from that region. Um, And that's why it's really known as kind of the best uh, cannoli uh, anywhere on the planet. Um, And it's made, weirdly enough, by ethnic Albanians rather Mm. than ethnic Italians. Interesting. Did you have any of it? Yeah, we went there on our, our first day of our walk um, and we went to a bar, uh, well, a cafe called um, Cafe Bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was the best cannoli we'd had. We had the whole time we were in Sicily. It was absolutely fantastic. And it was also the first time, as I mentioned, we saw all the blokes going for their morning uh, yeah. truckload of pastries, espresso, cigarette and get out there. Yeah. Best way to start a day. Yeah. Um, they've got um, s- lots of kind of different weird things in, uh, certainly in Palermo, there's a thing called uh, Stigiola, which mm-hmm. we can, uh, or maybe should Sarah share a photo of it with you, but it's the uh, intestines of a lamb wow. wrapped around a, le- a leek um, or like a celery stick, and then it's fr- uh, basically barbecued. Right, um, and you munch down on it. And, um, that sounds yeah. good. It sounds good. I didn't get to try it, unfortunately. We'd like s- a uh, twister ice lolly. Exactly like a twister <laughs> ice lolly. Look, there's a. Maybe we put this on our social pipes. But oh yeah, it does actually look quite a lot like a twister. Oh, and they eat it. Do they eat it raw? Do they? Cook? No, they cook it. So that's just the raw preparation right, wrapped right. around the. I think that looks more like a celery than a leek. But yeah. Um, and then yeah, you just munch for it all. Nice. Yeah, look good. good. Um, I was reading about um, one of their street food dishes in, I think it was Palermo, as well, somewhere in Sicily, is a spleen sandwich, mm. supposedly. I think I think cow spleen. That sounds great. Yeah, mm. which I know that um, in, I've had in Florence before, I think called I think it's called a lampredotto, lampredotto, which is like a tripe sandwich. Right. Just served in like a white roll with like a parsley sauce. Mm. Very nice. Very nice. Mm. I believe they um, now... This might be the source of some controversy, but according to Anthony Bourdain, they eat horse or donkey in Sicily. But right. on my last visit to Sicily a few years ago, we mentioned that to some local Sicilians and they took great offence to oh, that realization. Really? So I don't know if either Bourdain got his facts wrong or they're from That's a sort of different social strata from those who do eat the donkeys and maybe found that like offensive, maybe. Maybe it's a peasant yeah. food, so who knows. But yeah, um, mm. didn't see any, would love to try. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have been in Venice. Yes. So altogether different vibe. The Venice um, of the north of Italy. The Venice of from the postcards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Venice of the, the Venice, the Italian Venice. The Italian Venice. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was, I, I was there because I was doing an article about Venice Carnival, mm. 
which was um, good fun to experience and see. But it's a very, certainly food-wise, I mean, in general, Venetian food, for the average visitor, Venetian food isn't that good, really. Right. Because it's yeah. all tourist Tourist-based, yeah. Cash um, cows, tourist traps. Yeah, and it's like, you know, 15 euros for a rubbish pizza mm. and um, not much sign of kind of lagoon cuisine, yeah. local stuff. Um the drinks, on the other hand, obviously famous for the spritzes yeah. in Venice. Um, Aperol spritzes from there, but the, the local variation is called select spritz. That's mm. their bitters that they use in uh, Venice, which is like, it's the colour of Campari, but it's like um, less strong. Okay. And uh, sort of fruitier tasting. Interesting. And a bit less bitter. Right. It's a sweeter, um, slightly more... Sl- Fruity less strong, and sweet. less strong, fruitier, mm. sweetier, yeah. yeah, sweeter. I don't like it as much as okay. Campari, but uh, but yeah, a lot of them doing the rounds. Mm. Um, I, well, in fact, speaking of which, we may as well say what we're drinking. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> speaking of Campari, uh, and in honour of the land of Italy, we are drinking today a Negroni. Each. Lovely Negroni. I love an each. We're not sharing <laughs> big one with the straws. The first cocktail <laughs> that we've had on the show as well. So. Mm. That's um, yeah, I suppose so. It doesn't count the absinthe. Uh, well, yeah, I mean the absinthe, water guess, and sugar, water and count. sugar. But that's like very basic. The first yeah. kind of proper uh, mixed drink, maybe mm. IBA official cocktail um, uh, that we've had on the International Bartenders bar, Association. Uh, yeah, bartenders or bar, maybe. Yeah, yeah one or the other. Right. Uh, on bartenders, yeah, you're right. Um, fascinating history than the Groni. Um, it's it's really a riff on a drink called an americano, which right. not the coffee, not the you know Italian coffee and uh, espresso and water. Um, an americano is um, Campari, sweet vermouth, and soda water, basically. Um, but the name or the Negroni was invented purportedly by um, the Count Negroni, um, right. who went into uh, his favourite cafe or a local cafe um, in Florence, Italy, and he decided that he wanted his, his Americano to be a little stronger, so he told them to swap the soda water for gin. Okay. So the Negroni has become a gin, vermouth and Campari, three equal parts, right. poured over ice. Um, and I think that's probably a, a kind of worldview that a lot of us could stand to do quite well by, just swapping water for gin. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the, the Hemingway Papadoblo situation yeah, exactly. where you get rid of the sugar and, and double the rub. Yeah. yeah. Um, the count, uh, this, this Count uh, Negroni is a bit of a mysterious figure. Um, obviously, with, with the drink's popularity and grown so big, a lot of people have tried to kind of track down who he was. Um, and originally, they sort of thought it was this uh, uh, man called Camilo Negroni um, who doesn't really seem to have existed uh, or if he did he certainly wasn't a count um, but there's also a general uh, Pascal Oliver de Negroni Count of Negroni uh-huh. um, who again is believed to have invented the drink um, but about 50 years earlier than, than right. the other the other kind of legend so the, the this general Negroni was said to have invented it in 1857 mm-hmm doesn't really appear until kind of the early 20th century, um, which is when this kind of Camilo Negroni was said to have invented it. But hard to know which is what, which is which, because the drink appears when the Camilo was meant to have invented it, but Camilo probably didn't exist. Whereas it didn't exist when this other, this Count of Negroni's general Negroni was actually alive, mm-hmm. but he's said to have invented it. Right. As with many great things, it's shrouded in mystery and we'll probably Common get to the bottom of it. as well, isn't it? Common with cocktails, particularly because um, with with any kind of drink or any kind of cocktail, no one at the time is really making much note of it until it years later it might explode into something popular or something big. Yeah. Um, the first kind of written correspondence about the Negroni was as late as 1947, when um, Orson Welles, uh, who was working in Rome on a film tried what he described as a new drink called the Negroni. Um, and he said, the bitters are excellent for your liver, but the gin is bad for your liver. So they balance each other out. The bitters are excellent for your liver because they're only like 25% or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so, or like whatever, the medicinal properties yeah, of the yeah. bitters or some, some nonsense. Obviously, 
as with all these things, as we've discussed many times, uh, they the bitters are not good for your liver. No, they are alcohol. You know, good for the soul. I'd yeah, say. good for your soul. Yeah. yeah. Well, so cheers. Cheers. Have a Negroni. Mm. Negronis um, have a few variations as well. You might have heard of the Negroni Spagliato that's doing yeah. the rounds quite a lot on social media. Became a meme, minute. didn't it? Became a meme. Prosecco. Stunning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's essentially a, a Negroni, but you remove the um, the gin and you add Prosecco into it, so you make it more of kind of a longer... It's the coward's way out. It's the coward's way out. Um, I went to the bar that invented the Negroni Spagliato, which means wrong Negroni, by the way, so a lot oh, of really? mistaken Negroni. Right. Um, which is called Barbasso in Milan. Mm-hmm. Went there a few years ago, and uh, they the Italian custom is quite often to serve some nibbles with with yeah. a drink. Barbasso served the biggest nibbles I've ever seen in my life, which was three uh, like bruschetta crostini type open top sandwiches, huge bowl of crisps, huge bowl of olives, and they would refresh it every time you ordered another Negroni Spagliato. So wow. I decided that instead of buying dinner, I would just keep ordering Negronis yeah. Yeah. Um, to keep getting the free sandwiches. And um, I don't think well, I, I saved any money by not eating dinner, but I certainly felt uh, very merry for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, nice. It's a good system. It's, it's like the system. system in... It's like the tapas system. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You can eat cheap and a few drinks. Obviously, the the... Italians are not only just known for their aperitifs, their bitters, they're famous, renowned for their wine. Renowned for their wine, however, not so much in Venice, mm. you would think. No. Um, but I, uh, this was last year, went to Venice um, to do a story about um, the rediscovery of a indigenous grape that was indigenous right. to the Venetian Lagoon, um, which was called the Dorona. Doro being gold because it's right. like yellow in colour, and um, it was it was known from like history books, recipe books, but everyone thought it'd gone extinct, and everyone that, that people thought that some um, in kind of private vineyards and gardens and stuff it had been kept alive, but then in 1966 um, there was uh, a catastrophic flood, which right. there often has of been in, in Venice. Mm. Uh, being in the middle of the lagoon. Um, but this was the worst on record. And it uh, had, everyone thought, destroyed all the last remaining vines. And it was, I mean, it had been a long time before this had been kind of used as like, um, on any scale to produce mm. local wine, because, you know, hundreds of years ago, it became um, easier for the Venetians to import wine from elsewhere in Italy and, and beyond. So Venetian wine was extinct, it was thought. Um, but then uh, in 2002, um, a local winemaker called Gianluca Bisson was on the island of Torcello um, in the Venetian Lagoon. And he saw this odd grape, golden coloured grape, um, in a, on a vine in a garden um, next to a Byzantine church, uh, kind of like an overgrown garden sort of thing. Mm. And he, it made him wonder like, what it was or if it was the Dorona. And he asked... Uh, the lady was looking after the garden. She said, uh, "Yeah, it's it's Dorona. It's the historic wow. grape." Um, and so he didn't know if it was true or not. He arranged for DNA tests, and that which confirmed that it was this grape that was thought to have been lost. And so he consulted because no because not only was it thought that um, the, the that grape had been lost, it was the kind of commercial production of wine in Venice had been lost because it demands very specific conditions mm. because of the conditions yeah. of the soil and stuff so he had to go and consult all these um these old books uh to f- find out how like because the ground is so close to the water uh you have to plant the vines very far apart from each other because the roots have to go outwards rather than uh, straight rather down. than downwards okay um to get water to irrigate the vineyards had to dig hundreds of feet deep so you get through the brackish water of the lagoon to fresh water to fresh bring water. that up wow. so this is all stuff that he had to kind of learn again how to do um and then uh now there's uh, this amazing vineyard called venissa which produces um a wine called venusa which is um yeah very very 
you need I mean not being like a wine guy you can't I can't describe it in sort of technical language but it I mean you can taste the saltiness of it right yeah um and it's it's a white wine but it's like um it is kind of golden in color it's very dark for a white wine and almost has like the body of like a red wine um really really nice and yeah so I, I went there and they have an amazing restaurant there as well where they do serve like proper Venetian food like using grasses and herbs and stuff from the lagoon and obviously seafood uh, well you call it seafood fish and, and stuff from the lagoon um which was really really nice mm. um now some people listening to this may recognize that story because <laughs> <laughs> uh a few months after i went there it featured on um, and mad your story had been published yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> important to, to add that yeah um featured on uh the, hmm, I was going to call him everyone's, well, I was going to, I was going to call him like the nation's grandpa. But he's not that. He's not that. <laughs> no. old, is he? Un- favorite uncle. Everyone yeah. loves him. Stanley Tucci. Stanley, Stanley Tucci. Tucci's Italy. Um, and look, like I say, I'm not putting any fingers, <laughs> but <laughs> all I'll say is Tucci's on thin ice. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got a similar story actually from from Sicily. So um, we went to, or we walked to a town called, uh, we would say Prizzi. I think they would say like Prizzi or Prizzi, yeah. um, which is this amazing town of about 5,000 people perched on top of a huge, huge cliff. Um, like many towns in Sicily, it was built. Well, Sicily was had a, went for a lot of different conquests over the years. So the, the, the people started building their towns very high to make it, more difficult to be attacked and um, and conquered, mm-hmm. um, but we met the the owner of our of our hostel was a man called uh, Salvatore Greco, who was a local um, man who was sort of really passionate about where he he was from. He he'd actually lived all over the world and, and had come back to this tiny town because he mm-hmm. said what we have here is something that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And he was like the people around me that the other people of this town just don't realise it because they've never left and they're just in there. They think that everywhere in the world is like this and that where they live is rubbish and boring and that's why across a lot of Sicily you get this sort of younger, you know, lots of people are leaving, younger people are leaving little rural towns, moving to Palermo or Milan or London or Paris or New York Um, and lots of towns across Sicily are becoming ghost towns almost. And what and, and actually, there's like an EU program where you can buy a, or an Italian government program, you can buy a house in Sicily for a euro. Um, and then yeah, you have to develop. That, yeah. Um, anyway, this guy, this guy Salvatore, he was like, "Look, what we have here is amazing. I want to make people, young people, want to stay here, want to feel like they can have a life in rural Sicily." And he was doing all these different projects around. Um, he was kind of involved in. in re-establishing the walk that I went on oh, yeah. um, he owned a hostel that was there for walkers he owned a couple of Airbnbs he owned a shop um, he was part of the local like anti-mafia and anti-fascist organisations um, and for a hobby as well as doing all this other stuff he was a, a, a small batch winemaker and olive oil maker Love um, and he was super passionate about um, Sicilian wine and he was like what they what he was sort of saying was when in his region, which is quite mountainous, it's very, very difficult to grow wine, which is obviously similar to what you were saying about about Venice. It's extremely difficult for them to grow wine here. And he was sort of saying over the years, the the people of that small region have been tricked by commercialization and capitalism saying, and this is from his anti-fascist perspective saying, you know, you shouldn't do something that's difficult. You should just buy a bottle for five euros because it's easy. And, then you have an easy life. But he was saying, actually, we're losing our culture, we're losing our um, our way of doing things. He had a and then he had a bottle of fifty year old wine from the region and said, look, we were doing this fifty years ago. Why did we stop? And he started making it again. So he does uses a local Sicilian uh, grape called Perigone. Um, he makes about hundred liters of wine a year, not for commercial benefit, just for sharing with friends, with family with you know pilgrims like myself who come through town um and it's just a really lovely local thing of him sort of saying actually we've got something really exciting here where we live that people want to travel and come for and experience and make and spend money on mm-hmm. and his way of kind of helping to reinvigorate 
his community within rural Sicily, which I think is quite inspiring. Nice, yeah. Did you try the wine? Yeah, we tried the wine. Yeah, he, t- he took us to his cellar. Um, he made a red and a white. Um, and he let us, yeah, try the wine. He does a lot of, like, musical events and stuff and, and cultural and uh, puts on, like... Um, uh, his like cellar is an exhibition space for local artists, so he gets lots of people coming in, playing guitar, looking at the art, drinking the wine, and it's all very much about like bringing community together and mm. and kind of local creative and cultural producers as well types of people. Nice. Was it good? The wine. It was very good. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Yeah, good hobby to have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know. Like, it's, I was in Crete um, a few months ago, and it's the same. Like, my guide was saying, you know, everyone with a garden basically has. Mm. olive trees yeah. and they make like a lot of them either send the olives off to be made into olive oil or mm. they make it themselves which is a nice thing to yeah it's a lovely thing yeah uh, yeah they also I don't know if about if it's the same situation in Sicily obviously not exactly the same as Venice but like um, if it's not the most kind of productive uh, terroir mm. um, maybe that actually improves the quality of the wine because yeah. like they say don't they the st- stressed vines make the best wine yeah exactly um and definitely that was their view in Venice. They were big on the thing of like, um, you know, it's a symbol of, like it's unlikely to make wine here in Venice, mm. but it's like a symbol of uh, Venetian ingenuity, like yeah. building a city in, this, <laughs> in the middle of a lagoon, <laughs> making this wine in the middle of a lagoon. Yeah, reminds me of uh, Salvatore had a lemon tree. This town that he's living in, is, he's got a lemon tree at a thousand metres, and he was, uh, which wow. is higher than like Scarfield Pike in the yeah, UK, yeah. for example. Um, this is where he's trying to grow these vines, right? He also has a lemon tree, um, and he was saying, like, this lemon, there's a tiny, tiny lemon the size of a, you know, pinhead, basically. Yeah. So this is a, a sign of resistance. This is an <laughs> anti-fascist lemon that's, like, showing that, you know, the impossible can be done, that, and you should try things that are difficult. And yeah. I think that's quite inspiring. On the way home from Venice, mm. I had a very odd experience. Right. Tell me more. On the flight, which was, um, so I sat down... Um, and next to me was a, a couple, very nice sort of middle-aged couple. And um, as the flight took off, the guy got a book and he opened it. And it was a book of music. Mm. And he was like following it. And I thought, oh, he's obviously like a, well, a musician. musician but like yeah. a, probably like a classical musician. He was, re- he was reading the, the music. And then he's, he's following it with his finger and then he started singing along with it. And he was like quietly at first, but then got like to. If we went on a plane, it would just be like full loudness. <laughs> yeah. So like for the whole flight, and went on for the whole flight, two and a half hours. He was. I was just sitting next to this guy who was just going. Like, <laughs> it was so odd. I was so just thinking weird. like, I mean, fair play. To, to be honest, it's quite impressive. Mm. Like uh, being able to do that, just sightseeing. And also, but just the, the complete lack of self-consciousness. Yeah, the audacity. Have. I mean, fair play to it. Fair play to it, my respect to um, it. I did think it would be quite funny if he was just completely making it up. <laughs> <laughs> For two hours. Uh, and his, his wife seemed non-phased. She, by, uh, yeah, she's obviously used to it. Yeah. I also thought um, it's a good thing he didn't try this on the Ryanair flight from Venice back to Manchester because he probably would have got himself stabbed. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it was... Uh, were they Italian or were they... No, Scottish. Scottish. He was Scottish. He was Scottish. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, got to respect it. Yeah. I should actually uh, just say, not a not directly related to Italy, but um, we're, the gin we're using for our mm. Negronis, non-traditionally, so sorry to Italians who, as we're about to discover, do not like the non-traditional. <laughs> but um, we're, I was in the Isle of Man recently and I went to this really cool uh, gin distillery called Finodery which is, the Fenodori is like a um, sort of weird, hairy, ogre-like creature in Manx folklore. Mm. And um, in the Fenodori story, the Fenodori is from um, a place called, I think it's called Glen Audin, which is like, just like a valley, um, where supposedly the last Manx juniper tree was, because juniper was native to, um, was endemic to the Isle of Man. Wow. Um, and they're, they're trying to re introduce it uh, but they use loads of botanicals and um uh forage stuff in their in their gins which is which is really nice yeah the italians maybe more than any other um nation mm. that i'm aware of do not like people tinkering with their food do not mess with the italian cuisine 
Um, and there are whole like uh, Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, but there's one called Italians Mad at Food, Mad About Food, <laughs> where it's all just like, you know, people who snap their spaghetti in half before they put it in yeah. the water or any sort of like, they just absolutely hate anything like that. Um, but there's no more obvious example than pizza and what should or shouldn't go on pizza. Yes. Specifically, the Hawaiian pizza. The ham and pineapple. <laughs> ham and pineapple. I personally think it's a disgrace. Let me get Do out there. Well, I top, don't... top of the bill. And our friend Luke, your flatmate, mm. uh, loves it. Yeah, he swears by like it. Like he'd actually order it. He, he probably thinks it's Italian. Yeah, he, maybe. He, yeah. he loves it that much. <laughs> um, I don't mind it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't order it. But um, it's caused a lot of consternation over the years. Um, and not just from Italians, actually. But, so uh, in 2018... The president of Iceland, um, the shop or the country? Yeah, no, no the country <laughs> um, was uh, forced to row back on his comments um, that he said that if he could, he would pass a law banning pineapple on pizza in Iceland. And then he he came out and said, "You know what? I hold my hands up. I went too far." Like <laughs> um, but uh, he also cheekily suggested. Maybe people should have more seafood on their pizza. Mm. Trying to give the Icelandic fishing yeah. economy. Where do the Italians stand on that? Um, I guess anchovies on a anchovies. Pizza. Yeah, it's, a... it's so hard to know whether stuff is actually traditionally Italian or not. Yeah, because so many things are like. Interestingly, um, apparently <clears throat> anchovies on a pizza is apparently Americans' least favorite, pe- most disliked pizza topping. Interesting. But I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I just love salt basically. Yeah, in all its forms. Um, but uh, yeah, so Justin Trudeau then chipped in on that Icelandic president debacle. He said on Twitter, "I stand behind this delicious southwestern Ontario creation because ham and pineapple pizza was in fact created in uh, Chatham or Chatham, Ontario, by a Greek-born Canadian called Sam Panopoulos at the Satellite Restaurant." Um, in 1962, he had been, he was inspired by his experience of having prepared Chinese dishes, which uh, obviously mix sweet and savoury flavours. And um, so he started experimenting, adding pineapple, ham, mm. bacon, stuff to his pizzas. Mm. Um, apparently not very popular at first, as you can probably imagine. No. But he did yes. catch on in the end. But the, um, the Italian ambassador to the UK, uh, Raffaele Trombetta, was asked about this a couple of years ago on Sky News, no less. Um, Asking the important questions. Yeah. And he said this. Um, uh, the thing I like about this is you can just... The barely suppressed rage that you can hear <laughs> in his words. But he's trying to be um, diplomatic, obviously, as he's being the ambassador. He said, pizza is a traditional Italian dish and we know how to do it. <laughs> when you're cooking... You look so patronising. <laughs> when you're cooking, you look for the best combinations of flavours. And pineapple would not make pizza taste the best. <laughs> he added through gritted teeth, of course, it's also a question of personal choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I respect that. I recently, on a similar note, heard that Domino's had gone bust in Italy because... Really? The Italians, obviously... I mean, Domino's is expensive at the best of times, but Italians can get considerably better pizza for far less money than Domino's. Yeah. So why why would you go to... Why would the Americans try and sell back American pizzas to the to the Italians? It's yeah. madness. The price of Domino's is an absolute disgrace. Mm, yeah. But 18 quid for a pizza. But we would take sponsorship. Not in a restaurant, should but they we be. will <laughs> take sponsorship. And I, based on those little cars and all the free pizza they gave out to students, I think they might be up for it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, some of the, speaking of the Americans and pizza, like some of the variations they've come, I mean, you do get, obviously get great pizza in America as well, but I mean, Chicago pizza is an absolute disgrace, Mm. in my opinion. It's like quiche. Yeah, cheesy, it's just quiche. It's not, it's not even pizza. The thing is, like, I get it, the concept is fine of a deep dish pizza, but they just put like crushed tomatoes on top, they don't even cook them. Yeah, but also like they're deep dish, like they're not making up for it with more bread. They're just it's too much filling. Yeah, it's like drowning in filling, so it becomes like a pie or a tart, not a pizza. I respect like the uh, the kind of Detroit style pizza, which is 
more bread like and it's like in again in Sicily you get a the pizza is on top of a focaccia and it's mm-hmm. square shaped but it's still a pizza yep. you're just getting it's a, it's a thicker dough and that's kind of what they're doing in Detroit but Chicago is just like it's a, it's a pie it's a quiche it's, it's not a, a pizza pie. the Detroit one is square as well isn't it yeah exactly yeah um, are you aware of where the supposedly or at least the origin myth of modern pizza it's a bit like the margarita but tomato based pizza is where that comes from uh, I'm not aware, no. I mean, the New World, obviously, I guess, tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're talking um, in 1889. This is as the story goes. Mm. Um, a guy called Raffaele Esposito, who owned a tavern in Naples. And uh, he was like the... So at that time, pizza was more... Um, kind of more like a like focaccia type thing. You'd have it... They had it with garlic on. So mm. like a garlic bread sort of thing. But they didn't... Um, it wasn't as big of a thing to put tomato on it. So, um, Queen Margherita of Savoy, Queen of Italy, yeah. was um, travelling to Naples. And because this guy, Raffaele, was the most renowned pizza maker in Naples, he was asked to prepare three new dishes mm. um, for her to choose from. Two of which seem to have been lost to the mists of time, but one of which um, had tomatoes, mozzarella and basil on it which in like a patriotic kind of Tight colours of the Italian flag yeah um, and uh, that's the one that she chose and good choice then supposedly became a sensation and you know now pretty much all pizza is some kind of variation on that yeah however um, it is thought that this probably isn't true Um because local records reveal no contemporary reference to the incident. Um, But there is uh, records of a similar dish existing in Naples like decades before that. So it's probably one of those things... As with so many. Different stories getting combined and Mm. stuff, but that one. And this... this, um, One theory is that um, the business, the people who inherited the business... Um, we're just trying to drum up uh, some good, you know, PR sort of thing. Yeah, it's a shame that in the modern world you can't really just come up with like a barefaced lie to say the Queen has been to see your pizza shop because people would find out about it quite easily in the modern world. Whereas back yeah. in the day, you can just say, "Yeah, she came here." I remember in um, in Dharamsala, in India. Mm. Um, we went to this place, just like a Nepalese, uh, sort of like Tibetan restaurant, um, where they serve, you know, momos and stuff and like sort of hearty sort of curries and stuff like that. And on the front of the menu, like this classic laminated sort of uh, menu, was a picture of Piers Brosnan. And it said, because he'd obviously been there, like <laughs> decades, decades, earlier, earlier. decades earlier, it said, like, restaurant of choice of James Bond 007. <laughs> Well, that, yeah, that's this was, this was like there. a decade after he'd stopped playing James Bond, um, and he was just looking there, like he was just like really sweaty, sort of like disorientated. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the same sort of story. Maybe in, in yeah. years to come, people that would have receded into myth, perhaps. Yeah, as part of the legend of the Momo shop. And it's a good story. It's a great story. Speaking of origin myths of famous Italian foods, yes, uh, we all love a tiramisu. Absolutely. Um, and I was quite pleased to learn that the name tiramisu literally means pick me up yep. or lift me up. Mm. Um, and it seems historians think that it was invented in the 1960s because it doesn't appear in any cookbooks before then. So probably quite a, a modern invention. However, there are various origin myths around it, most of which revolve around it supposedly being, surprise, surprise, an aphrodisiac. <laughs> um and so the idea is that... So one of these stories is um, it was created for Cosimo de' Medici. Yes. In the late 17th century, he visited Siena and they created like a Churchill-style special brew. Yeah. They created uh, a new dessert for him. And then supposedly his courtesans, upon eating the tiramisu, noticed its um, aphrodisiac qualities and they named it tiramisu lift me up as like a kind of euphemism. Mm, okay, right. Not yeah, not the coffee having an effect on your alertness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and there's another theory, mm-hmm. which 
And again, very pleased to report that there's an organisation called the Academia del Tiramisu. <laughs> well, that is an academy I want to be a part of. Yeah. And their uh, stated aim is to, quote, disseminate the true geographic origins and authentic ingredients of the traditional recipe of tiramisu. Okay. And they claim that it was invented in Treviso in 1800 by the madam of a brothel who, again, I quote from their website, developed this aphrodisiac dessert to offer to customers, this is an interesting bit, at the end of the evening, in order to reinvigorate them and solve the problems they may have had with their conjugal duties on their return to their wives. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So So they... Recharge your batteries for your evening with your wife. And they should never suspect that you've been to a brothel. Because you've had a tiramisu. Yeah. She might be like, I can smell tiramisu. <laughs> <laughs> to a brothel. Um, and they say, uh, in quite nicely dramatic language, over the centuries, a veil of popular... P- I can't speak. Negroni. A veil of popular prudery hid the true origins of tiramisu. Uh, only in the true. 1960s. They were saying like, yeah, everyone's everyone's grandma knew, knew a recipe for tiramisu mm. before the 1960s, so could be true. Could be true. Could be. On the subject of uh, special brew, yeah. um, our old friend, uh, a really fascinating thing about Sicily, particularly, and I don't know if it's uh, across the, the the rest of southern Italy. I've not noticed it before. Is that they are really into their super strength British lagers. They have. Uh, not only did I witness. Uh, special brew available on draft, which wow. we we had mentioned in a previous episode as we're yet to some, attend to something that something that is uh, definitely desired by us having drunk those those cans previously. Good stuff. Special. Not only is it on draft, it's the original nine percent ABV. Again, oh. listeners of that episode will know what we're referring to. That's been dumbed down by mm-hmm. um, the PC gone mad brigade in the <laughs> UK. <laughs> Not only that, but it. But in pretty much every single pub, cafe, whatever, shop, you can get super tenants bottled everywhere. And for sort of non-UK beer aficionados, super tenants is a Scottish equivalent to Carlsberg Special Brew. It's sort of 8-9% uh, version of the tenants' uh, lager that comes from Glasgow. But for whatever mad reason, it's everywhere in Sicily. It's actually quite rare to find it in England, it's, even. Yeah, so exactly. Especially surprising. And I spoke to a to a barman um, on our last night there and said, "Why? What is it with <laughs> with the amount of super centers? And people are ordering it like it's a popular drink. You see it on you know going out on trays and stuff all the time." And I said to the barman, "What's you know what's going on? Why do you guys love it so much?" And I sort of said, yeah, "At home, it's kind of considered a bit of like a you know maybe wrongly, but like a homeless person's drink or." Um, you know, not particularly a particularly cultured drink where you wouldn't expect lots of kind of cultured Italians to be drinking it. And he said, well, we think of it as very exotic, very desirable, very premium. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking maybe it's kind of the same way that we in in the UK think of like some of the Spanish lager brands like yeah. San Miguel or Mal that in Spain are actually kind of the basic entry level, but over here are quite premium and desirable um, and can, can command quite a high price point. So... Mm. Thought it was quite interesting, and interesting. there's lots of obviously Italians getting absolutely shit faced on super strength British lager, which I love to see. More power to it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, as you can probably imagine, of Italian food folklore. Mm. Um, so, in the town of Urbania, I'm guessing it's pronounced, um, in the Marche region, there's an onion oracle Ooh. who every January. And she's called Emanuela Follini, and she predicts the weather for the year ahead by slicing open an onion, sprinkling the slices with salt, and then interpreting the reaction of the salt, how the salt reacts with the onion, whether it dries out, what areas of it are dried out, however, uh, how much of the salt is dissolved. And then this is, she says, these variations are sent to the onion by a saint, using right. magic. Yeah. Um, so what? this is how you do it. You chop an onion into 12 mm. pieces. Um, you uh, put them on a chopping board, which represent the months, sprinkle salt on them, and then you leave them on the windowsill facing east with the window open. 
and then at dawn, you bring them inside and you analyse them. Okay. Um, and the top of each slice represents the first 10 days of each month. The middle represents the second 10 days. The bottom represents the third 10, the, the rest of the month. Mm. Um, undissolved salt means it's going to be dry and sunny. Melted salt means it's going to rain, possibly snow if it's in the winter. And slices that have gone all hard and covered with salt crystals means frost and or snow. And if there's bubbles on it, it means it's going to be humid. Oh, wow. So now you know. Some other interesting Italian foods. Mm. Um, in Rome, there is a pasta dish called rigatoni con la pagiata, I guess it's pronounced, or paiata, um, known as the forbidden pasta. Ooh, sounds exciting. Because it was banned... Um, for 14 years, illegal for 14 years, between 2001 and 2015. So quite recent. Yeah. Yeah. Due to, um, there, apparently, I didn't know this, but in that during that period, there was uh, some outbreaks of mad cow disease in the EU, apparently. And I guess on like on the continent. Mm. It was a bit earlier here, wasn't it? I think, yeah. Most of it. But um, it's uh, rigatoni with the intestines of an unweaned calf, i.e. one which has only eaten its mother's milk. Um. And so they, they kill a suckling calf. They clean the intestines while retaining the, what I learned is called the chime, which is the undigested the food. Yeah. In this case, just milk. Mother's milk. Uh, and then cooking it turns it into something with a apparently ricotta-like consistency, mm. which is deemed to be a great delicacy. Um, there's also, I don't know, you might have come across this actually, because it's a carnival food in southern Italy, apparently, called sanguineaccio dolce. Which means, well, I don't know what it means, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a sweet black pudding, like a dessert black pudding. So it's pig blood with pine nuts, raisins, chocolate and sugar. Wow, that sounds excellent. Cooked um, or presumably uh, cooked with the blood. I think so, yeah. yeah. And, but it, I mean, it looks just like, like chocolate mousse. Mm. And in this TV series of Hannibal, it's a favourite of Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one, interestingly... Um, in ancient Rome mm -hmm. there was a delicacy of um, dormouse which in fact the species now because they used to eat it in ancient Rome is just called edible dormouse um, but, and they would have it either roasted and dipped in honey or they'd stuff it with pork, mince, herbs and spices and it was like a snack as it would be, little dormouse um, and they yeah they'd keep the Dormice in these things in the houses called a glirarium, which is like a terracotta jar with holes in it, like a hamster cage made of terracotta. And they fed, fattened them up on walnuts and chestnuts and acorns. Um, and it's the same species still eaten in Slovenia and Croatia. And rumour has it, um, still in rural parts of Calabria. Rumours which seem to have been confirmed... Um, in 2021, police raided a cannabis farm in Calabria uh, and found 235 frozen dormice. Oh, wow. <laughs> which apparently nowadays is a favoured mafia delicacy. Which is the bigger crime, the cannabis or the dormice? Hmm. Hmm. Neither that bad, really. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they found 235 frozen dormice, 700 cannabis plants. Uh, and three people were arrested for the production of drugs, so I guess they let the dormice slide. Yeah. But um, yeah, it says, this is from an insider article, it says wildlife advocacy groups explain baked dormice are served to high ranking gangsters at banquets organised by the Calabrian and Drangheta Mafia clan. Mm. Um, even though the, the creatures are protected by law, but they're probably not too bothered about that. <laughs> no, probably the least on the list of priorities. Apparently, eating them is a sign of respect for the organisation. Mm. Um, they're common at Andrangheta banquets and are put on the table when agreements must be reached or, or peace pacts between clans must be made. Interesting. Another, uh, I mean, I don't, I won't, um, we won't talk too much about the mafia. No. Not a stereotype you want to reinforce. And no. Also don't want to wake up with a horse's head. <laughs> like um, yeah, other interesting Italian ingredients. Cockerel's combs. Yes, and I've seen those before, yeah. Um, I haven't tried them. There's a Tuscan dish called Cibreo, apparently, which is 
chicken livers, cockerels, cones and mussels. And in, in Piemonte, they serve a hearty farmer's stew called financieras, including roosters, wattles, veal brains and bull testicles. Oh, wow. Um, speaking of Piemonte, truffles, of course. A yes. famous prized quarry of that, that part of Italy, uh, where they're hunted with dogs for the most part. Um I was reading in, there's an amazing book uh, all about fungi called Entangled mm. Life, which was, you may have seen doing the rounds by Merlin Sheldrake. It's an absolutely amazing book. I would rec- recommend it. But um, he talks about how truffles, even though, so they rely on, largely on being eaten by animals to spread their spores. But because evolution just sort of conspired to make them subterranean, mm. they also had to evolve incredibly strong aromas, ah, so that which explains why they're why so... Why they use dogs and pigs to find them. And... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So obviously they, they can yeah. smell them. Because uh, if they didn't smell so strong, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't yeah. get eaten. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, some of the money that changes hands for truffles is insane. Mm. In 2009, a Macau casino mogul Bid three hundred and thirty thousand US dollars for a truffle that was one and a half kilos, which is obviously big for a truffle. But I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it, to spend on a piece of food? Um, I've been to Alba in Piedmonte, yeah. where they make well, not they make they a lot of the truffle industry is based around, and it's it's, it's I feel like it's become a bit of a kitsch industry over there because every shop is like truffle oil, yeah, yeah, truffle yeah. whatever, truffle bracelets, truffle this, truffle that. So it's a I'm sure the real quality truffles are the ones that are actually being shipped out of the region and going onto the international markets and fetching high sums. But yeah, they get well, all the tourists there going, probably looking for truffle things. Yeah, it's like Salem and witches yeah, and yeah. Glastonbury and hippies. Hippie shit. <laughs> um, interestingly, there do, there is a massive black market for truffles. Mm. So a guy called Ryan Jacobs wrote a book called The Truffle Underground. It's a good name. Yeah, it's a good name. <laughs> um, and he he says that in tw- a twenty twenty a twenty twelve investigation found that seventy five percent of the supposedly Piemonte white truffles that were passing through uh, the Asti province, which is within Piemonte, um, actually originated in Italian regions far away, including the central region of Umbria and the southern region of Molise, and roughly fifteen percent of them didn't even originate in Italy; they're from um, Croatia. They're just shipping them through to get the name the stamp of yeah, approval because they that's can come sell, from Piedmonte. They can sell them for much higher prices. Yeah. And altogether, more than 90% of the truffles didn't come from Alba. Um, so, obviously, they're just whacking at the profit margins. But it does make you think, like, if no one could tell until they mm. investigated it, then uh, why are they so much more expensive? No, well, what's the yeah. difference? It's kind of like wine fraud. Like, did you watch Sour Grapes? Yes, incredible fruit? documentary. Such a good documentary, yeah. yeah. By the guy, the Indonesian guy, who was like, literally just forging wine labels and, and just bullshitted the whole wine industry through sheer yeah. sheer confidence and brashness, basically. Which it's a combination of confidence, be, being like, yeah, a con artist, and the fact that all this stuff is just like, yeah, emperor's new clothes. It's all it? bullshit. And also, yeah. I mean, with wine, like <laughs> at the top end of the wine market, people hardly ever drink it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but this guy was like mi- literally mixing shit wines into old bottles yeah. in his kitchen sink and selling them for thousands and thousands of pounds to supposed experts who should frankly know better. Yeah. Uh, but they don't because it's just an industry that's based on kind of fluff and yeah. nonsense. It's, uh, it's Wine fraud's got a very long history, I mean, everywhere, but mm. <clears throat> including in Italy. So supposedly they found amphorae, you know, like urns. Uh, at Pompeii with, with counterfeit wine stamps on them. Oh, wow. I don't know how they figured <laughs> how out they they counterfeit, that. but Thousands of years I suppose later. they could tell that the wine inside them wasn't from what uh, said it was. Yeah. DNA testing. Plenty of the elders supposedly complained about um, how much fraudulent Roman wine there was so the nobility could, couldn't know what they were drinking. Mm. Um, and there was a very famous wine called Falernian wine, apparently, which was like really a, a highly acclaimed, but then every like cheap bar was basically was selling it for suspiciously right. low prices <laughs> again not to perpetuate stories or myths about the mafia but I actually spent Carnival in Corleone which ah. is the town that gives its name to the family that the the godfather is from yeah the um, fictional film the, the fictional film of the godfather 
uh, named after this town Corleone. They have a Godfather museum there. They have an anti-mafia museum there. They've gone. They've tried quite hard to uh, show the terrible things that the mafia right. have done over the years in in all of that kind of part of Western Sicily. But Carnavale there is is kind of something else, and I think it'd be interesting to hear, you know, how it compares to kind of the traditional celebration yeah. in Venice versus what they do in. In rural Sicily, and we actually, it goes on for a few weeks, so we got to see a kind of few different things, but the main one we saw was in in Corleone, as we, and pretty much as we were walking into town, we started hearing extreme, about four in the afternoon, extremely loud, aggressive trance music, and little doddering old men with their kind of flapper caps and, and jackets on, just walking around, and you're thinking, how on earth is this? extremely loud noise coming from this town turns out it was just the warm-up and then we went out later that evening and they have these huge floats kind of like almost like mardi gras in in new orleans like huge massive parade floats everyone is dressed up like all sorts of nonsense from tv so you've got your your wednesdays for your wednesday adams from wednesdays you've got your money heist people you've got your squid game people you've got your um, your Jokers, your Batmans, your you know all these kind of people, and then five in Corleone they had about five or six floats, each one blaring out a different kind of loud electronic music, and then people just seem to congregate around whichever they prefer. Absolutely zero health and safety. The floats are just driving along. There are like babies prams in the way that are like moving just at the last minute as their parents kind of slowly notice that this huge kind of megalith of money heist people is coming towards them dancing around mm. to aggressive Italian trance music and it just goes on and on and on for three weeks straight till about five in the morning every night and it's just ridiculous and you're just thinking how on earth is well in the UK we have pancake day one day to yeah. celebrate the the start of Lent and it's it's a pretty tame affair um absolutely but to then translate you know the the period before fasting to essentially what is now a celebration of different TV tropes. We saw like Dragon Ball Z style floats. We saw yeah. Yeah, all sorts of random TV shit. Like how have the, the Sicilians translated the start of Lent into kind of a celebration of essentially Netflix and <laughs> techno music. <laughs> it's yeah. absolutely bonkers, but everyone's having a great time. It's kind yeah. of like Halloween, I guess, mixed with, Mixed with a, a, a procession floats yeah. and, and drinking shitloads, basically. Yeah. But yeah, very interesting experience and and a, quite a nice way to see Corleone. This sounds cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Venice Carnival is um, it's different. It's kind of more. I mean, it is a it is a pretty debauched affair. Certainly, if you know like where to look, kind of mm. thing. But um, it always was. That was kind of the point. Not necessarily in terms of alcohol, but. Apparently, back in the day, so the heyday of Venice Carnival was like Venetian Republic time, 17th and 18th century, towards the end of the Venetian Republic. And um, yeah, it was like a time that was, they had very strict social uh, rules and like you couldn't do much social climbing and stuff. But this was a time where everyone was wearing a mask, so all the, all the gloves were off, everything like, you know, it could be anyone under there. People were, you know, getting off with whoever they wanted to mm. get off with. and. Boozing not so much because apparently they used to drink lots of coffee and hot chocolate. It's because they wanted to stay up all night for whatever reason. Yeah, uh, gambling as well as a yeah tiramisu. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, obviously costumes are like a massive part of Venice Carnival. Not there's a bit more I think because of um, the more traditional aspect. They still a lot of the people, most of the people tend to be dressed as either as like. Venetian Republic era type people, Renaissance yeah. era type people. Traditional kind of costumes you'd expect. Yeah, and then there's kind of, a, because the original carnival had a big influence from like ancient Greece, mm. there's a bit of that element and stuff. But now, I mean, to begin with, the carnival was like, the whole point of it was everyone wore the same mask so that you couldn't tell the difference, plain white mask. Now, obviously, they're very ornamented and mm. fancy. and um, Yeah, um, but there's also, so there, there'll be people who come and spend, you know, thousands of pounds on costumes, masks, um, going to the, if you go to the Doge's Ball, which is the most famous masked ball, it's, uh, you know, we're talking thousands of euros for a ticket with dinner. Wow. Um, but it's not mostly Venetians because, so 
interestingly, VenezCon was banned because partly because of the kind of debauchery. Obviously, everyone wearing a mask led to possibilities for anonymous crime and mm. so on. And then when the Republic fell, the end of the 18th century, um, and the new Austrian rulers were a bit more kind of uh, disapproving of that kind of thing. Mm. So Carnival was banned for right. nearly 200 years. Seven, 1979, it came back officially. I mean, we know that, for example, Byron went, which was mm. in the early 1800s, so clearly some elements of it still went on. But... Um, so it was banned for a long time. It became more of like, like you said, like a Halloween type thing. Like kids would wear masks and stuff. But then the original, in its original form, it wasn't, it didn't exist anymore. But then 1979, the tourist board decided it would become like centerpiece of the tourism industry, of the kind of tourism drive. So now you have this strange situation where it's the busiest time of year in Venice, which right. is ridiculously busy all the yeah. time, completely reliant on tourism at the best of times. But the locals have a very mixed kind of feelings towards it because Venice is kind of as a living and breathing city it's kind of only exists because of tourism mm. like most Venetians are getting pushed out because of the cost of living more and more hotels and the palazzos and stuff because um, I said to my guide like what, what, what are you doing for because I was there just before the like climactic weekend of Carnival I was saying like what are you going to how are you going to spend it thinking booze cruise on the lagoon go to one of the doges ball or whatever and she was like, oh, I'm going skiing. Because <laughs> most people get, yeah. get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but still, an amazing thing to experience. Um, very, I mean, the costumes are incredible. We get to see some cool, like, street theatre and stuff. Mm. Um, and it is cool that it has come back in some form. Um, but very different, it sounds like, to Sicily. Yeah, I think um, the Sicily one's fun, but I think I'd prefer the authenticity even though it's obviously from the 70s, but the sort of the callback to the old old ways yeah. of the Venice one, the uh, the Sicilian interpretation is, uh, yeah, quite strange and quite in your face and, and quite modern and, and not that kind of historical in the same way that Venice sounds like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about... So Venetian masks obviously have become like a bit of a trope in culture, like Eyes Wide Shut is like they yeah. figure prominently in but obviously lots of other things as well. Um, as time went on, this original plain white mask began to be developed a bit and there were some variations on it. And because it was this time when people, you know, the normal rules of society were cast off, mm. they became like a level playing field for every, everyone. So anthropologists call it liminality. It's like a liminal time, in-between time sort of thing. And the normal rules are sort of kind of suspended. One of the ways that this happened in Venice Carnival was that no one who was wearing a mask could be arrested. Wow. Because they... <laughs> During were, carnival. Well, yeah, as long as they kind of were acting in accordance with the um, qualities associated with their costume or their mask. Mm. So, because they were deemed to, like, kind of... They were playing a role, you know, they weren't being themselves. Yes. Um, and so there was one mask in particular called... I think it's called the Ganaga. I think that's how it's pronounced. I might be pronouncing it wrong. Nyaga, maybe? Anyway, it's a cat mask, the feline one, which, like, you see everywhere. That became very popular among the gay community in Venice because homosexuality was a crime in the Venetian Republic. You, it was punishable by death, hung or burned to death in the Piazza San Marco. But um, they, this cat mask, which was worn with, um, like, a dress... And they would carry a basket full of kittens with it as well. Um, so it was considered like a female role. And so if a man was wearing this mask and then had relations with another man, it was deemed to be like heterosexual because right. he was a woman. He was in, in, character, in character as, woman. as a woman. And this loophole became so like emboldening to gay people in Venice that the female prostitutes in Venice started to go out of business because the male <laughs> prostitutes had such a boom in business. Oh, and this being centuries past, the female prostitutes were like, well, we need help from the authorities. So they appealed to the Bishop of Venice. And his response was to say, okay, as a concession, to like boost business and kind of uh, suppress the corrupting influence of homosexuality, you can flaunt your wares, i.e. stand topless on bridges and in windows. <laughs> um, 
And so to this day, in the old red light districts of Venice in um, San Polo, there's a bridge called uh, the Ponte della Tete, or the Bridge of Tits. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, there you go. Well, on that note, we should probably go get a pizza, I reckon. I think we should. Um, so, yeah, as always, thank you very much for listening. Um, please leave a review, spread the word. Share with your friends and family. Uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Ciao, Ciao ragazzi. Ciao.